0: Welcome back to the far middle. Winding down 2023, entering the year's final month. Nick Deolius, I am. As always, I am happy to be spending 30 minutes or so with you this week. Happy Hanukkah to all of our Jewish friends out there. Hope it is a great Hanukkah for you. Hang in there. I know that uh, times are indeed dark, but keep the faith. And tomorrow is Pearl Harbor Day, so let's not forget that, especially remembering those who lost their lives on that infamous date back in 1941. Our sports dedication for episode 133 is going to have a connection to Pearl Harbor Day, actually, because the subject who we have our dedication focused upon enlisted in the armed forces just a few days prior to that attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet. And that's part of what makes this individual beyond the sports world and places him into sort of the category of great Americans. And I'll explain why momentarily. But first, let me give you a more, let's call it a traditional hint is to who our dedication will be. What is the only stadium in the United States, college football, that is named after a Heisman Trophy winner? So think about that for a minute or two. You might want to hit pause for you sports fans. But if you didn't hit pause, I'll give you a hint now. The answer to that question, it's one of the classic venues in all of college football, and it sits smack in the middle of America in Iowa City, Iowa, on the campus of the University of Iowa. Now, the stadium of the Hawkeyes is Kinnick Stadium, and it is named after an individual who has a bronze statue outside its gates, Niall Kinnick. Now, Niall Kinnick won the Heisman back in 1939 playing halfback at Iowa, which obviously makes him part of sports history. And some data sources say that the Heisman win came on our air date, the premiere date of episode 133 on December 6th. While others say it was late November, but we'll assume the December 6th date is a far middle prerogative. Now, now Kinnick even won the Associated Press Male Athlete of the Year Award in 1939, which was no small feat. Why? Because he was beating out some other names that you've heard of and who were prior dedications for far middle episodes, those being Joe DiMaggio and Joe Lewis. And he was the first college football player to win that AP award. But 99% of Americans today, they have no idea who Niall Kinnick was or why he transcended sports and should be recognized more as a great American than a great football player. And we're gonna remedy that on the far middle. And we're gonna start with Exhibit A, his Heisman acceptance speech at the Downtown Athletic Club in New York City. Kinnick made the following statement during his acceptance speech, quote, Finally, if you'll permit me, I'd like to make a comment which, in my mind, is indicative perhaps of the greater significance of football and sports emphasis in general in this country. And that is, I thank God I was warring on the gridirons of the Midwest and not on the battlefields of Europe, end quote. Now, Kinnick saw what was coming beyond the gridiron, what was developing on the geopolitical stage. And a Boston reporter commented, this country's okay, as long as it produces Niall Kinnick's. The football part is incidental. It's well said by that uh, Boston reporter. The University of Iowa recently began playing the section of that speech that I just read on the scoreboard before the star-spangled banner at every Hawkeye football game. And I've been there to witness it myself live. If you're not inspired and taken in by the whole scene, there's something wrong with you. Kinnick turned down lucrative offers to play pro football and instead went to law school. He was a strong academic student his entire life, but he left law school after one year and he enlisted in the Naval Air Reserve. He reported for induction three days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, which is that connection that I alluded to. And Kinnick said, quote, there is no reason in the world why we shouldn't fight for the preservation of a chance to live freely. No reason why we shouldn't suffer to uphold that which we want to endure. May God give me the courage to do my duty and not falter, end quote. Kinnick was training to be a fighter pilot, and in early June 1943, he was training off of the aircraft carrier USS Lexington when his Grumman Wildcat had to emergency land in the water. Rescue boats arrived on the scene but found only an oil slick. His body was never recovered. He was 24 years old. And was the first Heisman Trophy winner to die. Iowa Stadium was named after him in 1972. And an Iowa sportscaster summed up our episode 133 dedication when he said this about Niall Kinnick. Everything that can be said that is good about college athletics, he was. He didn't represent it. He was it. Yeah, that about sums it up. And Niall Kinnick, he made the most of every opportunity and moment in his life. Something to celebrate for sure. Now, let's kick off Connections for the Week with what Machiavelli had to say, I believe, in chapter 15 of his most famous work, The Prince. He wrote, As my intention is to write something useful for discerning minds, I find it more fitting to seek the truth of the matter rather than the imaginary conceptions. Many have imagined republics and principalities that have never been seen or heard of. Now, I just love that section of The Prince. And it is a theme and approach that I tried to mimic with efforts like The Far Middle and with my book, Precipice, to sort of peel back the optics and veneer of image that so many policies and movements fixate upon. And instead, to focus on exposing the realities and the truth as in clinical, rational, scientific, or mathematical truth, not some squishy definition or version of the truth. You constant listeners, you are those discerning minds that Machiavelli viewed as the target audience. Because doers and value creators, we just can't whittle away all of our time wondering about the imagined. Instead, the doers and value creators, they have to execute and deliver for the benefit of not just themselves, but of all society as well. So let's connect to a little, as Machiavelli called it, truth of the matter on the topic of work and economic endeavor. Because too many of what Machiavelli called those imaginary conceptions, they're running wild these days across academia, in politics, and media. Let's start at the core of economic endeavors and systems. At its core, all economic systems, all of them, are capital-based or capitalistic, dare I say, to some extent or variation. Now, that's true for the United States, EU, Russia, China, Venezuela, you name it. All economies need capital in the form of money or plants or equipment or technology. And it doesn't matter if Karl Marx is running the show or if Adam Smith is running the show. Now, the difference across all those different nations and their economic variations are where the capital is controlled and who owns it. If a capitalistic free market is at play, then, of course, the individual owns and the free market reigns. Meritocracy blooms, And the best and most efficient and the hardest working, they rise to the top and they reap the rewards, which can create unequal outcomes by design, and sometimes quite striking gaps between those at the top and those at the bottom. In socialism and communism, as embraced by the left, property and capital, they're they're owned either by the state or people. The capital is always controlled by the state with a wink-wink and a nod-nod on behalf, of course, to the people's interests and of the public good. That's the imaginary conceptions that Machiavelli spoke of. And government controls and government feeds, which means less for the individual and quality of life drops. That's the truth of the matter, using Machiavelli's phrase. And as we see in places like Venezuela and Russia and China and Iran, with their variations of socialism and communism. Now, a related imaginary conception is that capitalism, it's broken. You hear that a lot, right? No, capitalism, it's not broken. What's broken is how the free market for all of us evolves into a controlled market for the favored class or the 1% through policy and machinations between the bureaucrat and the political leader and the special interest. That special interest could be an EV maker, a public union, a global bank, or elite academia. They want a stack market to favor them, to have them profit, of course, at the expense of the rest of us. That's not capitalism, but that's how the current US and EU economies work. And it makes capitalism look bad, and it slides us toward the worse end of the spectrum towards socialism and communism. It's quite di- diabolical um, when you think about this. The left undercuts capitalism's reputation, how? by pointing to the very policies that are designed to be less free market and less capitalistic based. And then the left says, see, we need to address the inequities of capitalism and move toward more socialism in government controlled or government provided platforms. It's genius, but it's also scary. And I'd like to make a connection to another advantage of capitalism and free enterprise. And it's a moral one which is to recognize that in a free market, every individual can display their morals with their personal actions and their personal decisions. It's basically a platform for the self, the individual, to assert their convictions with every decision made because everybody has free will in that system, because they call their own shots in such a capitalistic system. Capitalism is an incubator for classic liberalism to thrive. There's no doubt about that. Heck, I might even argue that capitalism is a prerequisite to a society that embodies classic liberalism. And don't take my word for it on this point. Take none other than Pope John Paul II's word for it. Because John Paul II provided many writings on the moral life, more maybe philosophy than even religion, I would argue. And he made the point that in every choice that involves ethics, which are many in one's life, a person does two things, No matter what he or she decides, first thing they do is they commit to a moral act under free will that that individual is going to have to own. And then the second thing that's done is that she or he is adding another layer to what is becoming their cumulative character brick by brick and decision by decision, often visible to all, particularly those closest to the individual. Now, maybe Pope John Paul II was making the point to assenuate the importance of making those decisions consistent with Catholic doctrine, which is fair enough. You know, he was the pope after all. But his view, I think, applies to life beyond religion, at least to me, it does. And the key underlying assumptions in his view is that it is always best, always preferable to have a society or culture where the individual gets to decide who they are and how they act and that they must end up owning those series of decisions because they made them on their own volition. And that what gets built in terms of character is that person's own masterpiece. If it's an ugly masterpiece, it's on them. If it's a beautiful one, they should get the credit. Not the state, not a religion, not a higher authority, and not the elites. It is to me an acknowledgement of capitalism and individual rights. Now, how stark is it to see Pope John Paul II's view of the world in philosophy versus Pope Francis's view today. Quite the schism, so to speak. Hey, let's use a connection to jump from the most religious of philosophers, Pope John Paul II, to a famous atheist philosopher, Ayn Rand. She published her book for the New Intellectual over 60 years ago. And what she had to say about what makes a New Intellectual is stunning when you hear it, in part because it's profound, but also because it agrees with and fits snugly with how Pope John Paul II and Machiavelli articulated similar themes. So in Rand's own words, who are to be the new intellectuals? Any man or woman who is willing to think. All those who know man's life must be guided by reason. Those who value their own life and are not willing to surrender it to the cult of despair and the modern jungle of cynical impotence. And she goes on, not the culture of Attila and the witch doctor, but the culture of the producer. And then finally, she writes, the new radicals are the fighter for capitalism. Yeah, Rand could be direct and blunt for sure, but also always clear and rational. And the new intellectual is an advocate speaking for the doer and the free market and the individual achiever and for free will. The connections of Machiavelli and Pope John Paul II and Rand, they all point to from very different times and mindsets to the same things of incredible value, work, individual achievement, and capitalism. And speaking of work, let's connect right into that topic, specifically the dignity of work. Let's add another thought leader to the group we assembled for this episode, the legal scholar and bioethicist, Mr. O. Carter Sneed, who I believe is at Notre Dame. He's got a few compelling views on the value of work in today's society, that I thought you will find interesting. Now, when pandemic hit, Sneed, like many of us, saw very troubling signs and trends developing across society. Allow me to quote him directly because he does a great job summing it up. It seems to be that elite opinion makers and thought leaders who only need a laptop and high-speed internet to do their jobs have forgotten the vast number of their fellow citizens who work actually requires in-person, face-to-face contact. That, I think, reflects a failure to remember one's neighbor, or anyway, the neighbor who isn't part of the knowledge economy. That's bad enough. But the notion that one can make up for the loss merely by paying people to stay home is evidence we've forgotten that work itself is essential to human flourishing. That's how Mr. Sneed put it. And right on, Mr. Sneed. And by the way, Sneed also referenced Pope John Paul II when the Pope wrote, Work is a good thing for man a good thing for his humanity, because through work, man not only transforms nature, adapting it to his own needs, but he also fulfills achievement as a human being, and indeed, in a sense, becomes more a human being. Wow. Transforming nature and adapting it to man's own needs, in the words of Pope John Paul II. Yeah, back then when humans came first. Now the left dictates that the abstract earth comes before man and work. But there's a problem with finding and securing noble, meaningful work these days. A big problem, in fact. Such work has vanished. It's rare, and it's hard to find. Why? Well, the harsh truth is that most of it was purposely outsourced to our adversary, China, via globalization driven by the elite and expert class. If you go back to the 1990s constant listeners, the American policy since then has done everything it could to subsidize and prop up a flailing China. In the 1990s, recall how communism was failing everywhere, particularly in the USSR and in Europe. China wasn't doing all that great either, but here come those Western experts and elites saying, wait a minute, let's offshore all of our industry and send the jobs that go with them to China so that it can demonstrate a form of communism that actually works. Because we in America... We'll sustain it, and we'll backstop it. Now, why did we do that? Well, you remember, right? Manufacturing was obsolete work. It was yesterday's jobs. It was below us. Send all that stuff to China. Let them make the stuff. Because we, in America, we're all going to join, come on, constant listeners, say it with me, the knowledge economy. There's that term again used by Mr. Sneed a minute ago. So it was all about clicks and not widgets or manufacturing widgets, so to speak. Pittsburgh, by example, we devastated entire communities in this region and city in two generations and counting so that we could become a high-tech region driven by meds and eds. Of course, you know what. And don't worry about propping up China because I'm sure you also recall this bogus nonsense. You know, China's going to magically liberalize its society and turn into a democratic free market that's going to respect individual rights. I mean, China just needs a multi-trillion dollar push and nudge via globalization to willingly and fundamentally change their entire society into the polar opposite, effectively, that those in power in China desire it to be. That was basically the wisdom in Ivy League ivory towers, in conglomerate boardrooms, and throughout government. Meanwhile, China just smiled not believing its luck that our elites and experts gifted them, they took over and dominated global manufacturing. And now China, would you know it, it dominates tech as well. Your smartphone, your electric vehicle battery, uh, your social media platform of choice, medical equipment and pharmaceuticals, your broadband hardware, all from, all controlled by China. Heck, even your pandemic these days is manufactured in China which is another thing the elites got 100% wrong before they were assaulted by the data and facts. Oh, unless I forget, also, our other killer pandemic made in a different type of Chinese lab, which of course is fentanyl. For sure, the elites and experts of the West handing over our manufacturing base of core industries to China in the hope that it would democratize and that would be happy, China would be happy, doing all that supposedly menial blue collar stuff so that we could work effortlessly in that knowledge economy. That view is the biggest strategic blunder since the World War II era, and we haven't even begun to fathom the damage that will be done from it, which rolls into the next connection, how those elites and experts have suddenly done a 180 when it comes to China. So let me read to you two summaries from the United States National Security Strategy document, one from the 2015 version, and then the second from the 2017 version, two years later. So first, the 2015 version under the Obama administration. And I'm gonna quote here. The United States welcomes the rise of a stable, peaceful and prosperous China. We seek to develop a constructive relationship with China that delivers benefits for our two peoples and promotes security and prosperity in Asia and around the world. We seek cooperation on shared regional and global challenges. And then to top it off, how about this line in the document? While there will be competition, we reject the inevitability of confrontation. Okay, now here's some reading from the second version in 2017, this time drafted under the Trump administration. Again, I'm going to quote China seeks to displace the United States in the Indo-Pacific region, expand the reaches of its state driven economic model and reorder the region in its favor. China gathers and exploits data on an unrivaled scale and spreads features of its authoritarian system, including corruption and the use of surveillance. It is building the most capable and well-funded military in the world after our own. Its nuclear arsenal is growing and diversifying. Okay, say what you want about President Trump from the outbursts to the crudeness to the election questioning. But his administration saw the Chinese threat first and set the norm that has followed since to this day. And speaking to this day, you should find it terrifyingly ironic that the Biden administration is using the whole of government to tackle climate change, while China and Xi are using their whole of government to tackle us. Although the expert class in D.C. might just be waking up to the threat of China, at least based on that second national security assessment, don't fool yourself into thinking that corporate America has awakened to the threat. Quite the contrary, as our next connection shows. Now, the example I'm going to use, and we could use many examples, unfortunately, was a recent exchange on a national business show between a journalist and the CEO of Nike. Now, can you think of a more iconic American brand than Nike or Nike, however you want to pronounce it? Well, the CEO was gently pressed during the interview about his defending Nike's operations in China. And here's what he said in the interview, which was essentially a doubling down of his prior position. Quote, we take a very long term view with China. We'll continue to invest in China while also operating a very responsible global supply chain, end quote. Well, well, does that sound astute and rational? Except it ignores a few key facts. First, China's our adversary in an increasingly us or them standoff situation. So if you are with them, so to speak, via investment, then you're going to be against us. Second, let's talk about what responsible, using the term of the CEO, might mean and with respect to Nike's activities in China. It's well-established and documented by now that much of the supply chain in China involving apparel, like Nike products, has two massive problems. First, there's a clear lack of living wage for paid workers who toil in miserable conditions, dare we say sweatshops, and not just China either, of course. But here is something that is unique to China when it comes to the apparel supply chain. China utilizes slave labor and work camps for the oppressed Uyghur minority something we haven't seen since the days of World War II in the Axis powers. And guess what, Constant listeners? Nike and its leadership, including that CEO talking about responsible supply chains on national TV, they lobbied against the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act in Congress. Now, does that sound responsible to you? Does it sound rational in taking the long-term view? Is it consistent with all that stuff? that Nike says it stands for in its commercials and on its websites and through its PR campaigns. Come on, man. So where might all this end for America? If doers are prevented from doing in the economy, if the private sector and free market and capitalism are displaced by a swelling state economy more akin to socialism or worse, if incentives to engage in noble work are removed and replaced with state incentives to not work, if manufacturing is not revived, If China is not only allowed to, but is encouraged to take out our core pillar industries with its versions that use unfair labor and environmental and IP practices. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure, we know where we are heading because there is a nation that epitomizes what happens when all these things occur over an extended period of time. Germany. It has gone from best to worst across a range of economic metrics in a relatively short period of time. But the underlying policies that demoted Germany's economic standing, they've been at play for a longer period of time. Now, what is Germany doing? And we head, and as we head into an uncertain 2024, lots of things, many of which we touched upon on this episode. It's seen labor shortages, and that's become a big problem. Energy prices are sky high and energy supply is intermittent. The supply chain, it's a mess and the time for procurement has stretched out the painful time periods that hurt productivity and efficiency. The regulatory state has grown into a colossus where doing anything takes way longer and costs much more than it used to. And costs for all economic activities are going even higher, first and foremost due to climate policy. But there is another key factor working against the German economy. What was once its biggest customer for its output, China, is now its biggest economic competitor. The biggest and clearest example is with the auto industry. Two years ago, 75% of the cars made in Germany were exported, and Germany wanted to make cars to sell to the Chinese driver. But now China is making cars cheaper than Germany, and China is going to protect its domestic market of drivers, and China is going to swamp the European market with its autos. You add in the fact that the EU and Germany essentially mandate EVs and that China controls the EV and battery supply chains globally, you can see where German automaking, once the pride of that nation, is looking more and more like a dinosaur facing an extinction event. And all these trends and problems actually go back prior to COVID. And now the macro metrics, they're starting to display these issues. Not long ago, Germany ran budget surpluses and was the engine of Europe, pun intended at least with respect to autos. But today, Germany's fiscal situation has flipped from sound to unsustainable. Exports boomed 10 years ago, but started to languish around six years ago, and they've eroded further since. And this is a big deal for Germany because almost a third of the workers and output of the German economy are tied to export. By comparison, that's four times the level or percentages of the US economy. And by the way, one tactic that many German companies are using to cope with this problem, and it sort of makes sense when you think through it, is to assess all the mounting problems tied to economic activity in Germany and deciding to offshore much of that economic activity to nations where the target markets reside. Which means the jobs and the plants and the production, they are leaving Germany and heading to places like China or the US or wherever the end market resides. And that's not good for the German citizen, and that is an acceleration of this downward spiral. It's pretty clear that the engine of Europe 10 years ago is now the sick man of Europe today. Let's close this far middle installment, one that discussed the nobility of enterprise and work and the threats both face in today's global economy. And let's close it with a happy birthday wish to Mr. Peter Buck, the guitarist and co-founder of the alternative rock group R.E.M. Now, I was first introduced to R.E.M. in college in the late 1980s when they were starting to make some serious but awesome noise. And one of my favorite singles from R.E.M. can serve as a neatly tucked final connection for this episode. It's off the album Document from 1987, and the single is Finest Work Song. Great guitar work by Peter Buck on that track, And here is a verse from that song that fits right into far-middle thinking. Take your instinct by the reins, your better best to rearrange. What we want and what we need has been confused, been confused. Go out there, make it your finest week, and do your finest work until we reconnect.